everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with a big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music, and we are back here again today as ever with the co-creator of Hell and High Water, Grace Weinstein. Grace, I'm always glad to see you, and I wonder, I've been thinking about you a lot in the wake of last week's 1-6 committee hearing in prime time. It's like the end of season one, we've reached it. And I ask you, as a representative of your generation, Generation Z, in the finest tradition of Siskel and Ebert, who you probably don't know who they are, thumbs up or thumbs down as a reviewer? Thumbs up or thumbs down? I know who they are. We are getting a big thumbs up, and I thought I would be sat here giving a big thumbs down. As my favorite newsletter writer, Hunter Harris, said, this was Bravo-produced reality television, baby. Every night, it was riveting. And they closed it off on the most dramatic high note they could have possibly carried out. I'm impressed. Yes. And also I say hat tip to my friend Dan Prisgoda, who was working on the TV side of that as a person yeah. who, I, who I believe made the Josh Hawley thing happen. I haven't yet confirmed that with Dan, but Dan, I think, believe was behind that because boy, prancing Josh Hawley is now one of my favorite things in the world. I'm really, that's a big win. Big win. All right. Well, yes, the whole show ends with a cliffhanger and we're all kind of wondering what the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland are going to do. Are they going to indict Donald Trump? Another cliffhanger. Is Donald Trump going to run again for president or at least announce that he's running again for president? And to take us through all of that this week, we have my friend Jonathan Lemire, the White House Bureau Chief for Politico, the host of Way Too Early on MSNBC, which, Grace, I know, given some of your tendencies and propensities for staying out all night, not doing anything wrong, but like at the library, you know, reading Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. Gibbon, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, all that kind of stuff. You come home, it's about 5 a.m., and you're just like, I need some cable news. And so then you watch Lemire, right? Absolutely. First thing that clicks on, you rinse off the sweat from lots of hours in the library and turn on MSNBC and watch the sun come up with Jonathan. (laughs) But I hear he has a new book coming out, which is very, very exciting. He does. He has a new book coming out, actually just coming out today. The book is called The Big Lie, Election Chaos, Political Opportunism, and the State of American Politics After 2020. People have done 2020 campaign books and people have done one six books. This book isn't really that. It's really more both backward-looking and more forward-looking. Backward-looking in that it's kind of a history of the idea, how the big lie took root long before the 2020 campaign. Jonathan traces it back to 2016. And then spinning it forward, how after the insurrection, it's reshaped American politics. And Jonathan kind of says, here's what the big lie has also done because of all this kind of raising the stakes on Merrick Garland's decision at the DOJ that I was talking about a second ago. Here's what he says about this because he not only talks about the stakes, but then he drops a little bit of inside reporting from his work at the White House on what the Biden administration is thinking. They're very close-lipped about it, as he says, but he gives a hint of what they really would like to see happen at the DOJ. Let's listen to that. The White House is so careful to avoid the appearance of interfering with the Department of Justice. We know they believe that Donald Trump did so repeatedly, and they feel like that they cannot do the same, that these are separate, sacred institutions, and they won't meddle. That said, Privately, yes, there there is a sense in the upper circles of Biden world, and I'm told the president himself that believes that Donald Trump is an existential threat to the nation. What he did on January 6th does deserve to receive a criminal charge. There's some news there, boy. Not surprising in a way, but I guess that's the kind of the question right now. We know these committee hearings were for history. You had to get to the bottom of what happened and lay it all out for the sake of future generations and all that. But I ask you, Grace, are you one of those people who thinks, hey, if there are no criminal charges that come out of this thing, it's all been a big, fat fucking waste of time? No, 
I don't think it would be a waste of time. Good television is never a waste of time, but is the expected and hoped for outcome that we do get a criminal indictment? For sure. Will that happen? I don't know. In the past six years or however long since Donald Trump took office, the good guys don't win very often, which I think is part of the reason we're such a jaded and darkened society right now. So am I expecting Merrick Garland, of all people, who's been very quiet and very careful? I can't see it happening, but I would love to be proved wrong. You know, look, that decision is going to shape a lot of things. And some of the realities of American politics we talk about on the podcast with Lemire today, everything from Joe Biden's own decision about whether to run again in 2024 that he's facing, the midterms coming up, Gavin Newsom's White House ambitions that are increasingly evident in terms of how he's behaving. Grace is like, oh, no, (laughs) I don't need it. I don't need it. Not Gavin Newsom. And whether, you know, Ron DeSantis would have a chance Ugh. against Donald Trump, would he beat Donald Trump or would he get crushed by Donald Trump like a bug? Blamir has views about that. It's all here. It's all here on this podcast. And also some discussions of both the Boston Red Sox and you too. And you might wonder how it's possible that all those things can fit into one podcast. But if you're really wondering that, you are probably not familiar enough with the wide, wide world of Hell and I Water. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, I can't say that. I'm not going to. I already said you will pay. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say. Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? Go go to the paragraph before. Okay? I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Yesterday is a hard word for me. Yesterday is a hard word for him, Jonathan Lemire. Is that because of you think it has multiple syllables in it or because of the emotional resonance? There's Donald Trump, those outtakes from his January 7th speech that were played in the final primetime 1-6 committee hearing. That's what that was. But yesterday is a hard day for him. Why is that? Why do you think that was? When yesterday is January 6th and that becomes the legacy of your presidency, <laughs> there probably is a second meaning to it. But John, what you just played there, I mean, the hearing last night, and I know we're going to get into it, was so compelling so many ways and so many chilling revelations but i'd argue what you just played was the biggest takeaway because it showed trump's refusal to truly condemn the rioters of the capitol because those were his people and he knew he would need them again down the road but secondly his unwillingness to accept that he lost he would not say the election is over he still hasn't said the election is over to this day he has not conceded and that fuels everything he has done in 2022 and will beyond so you're one of the great Trumpologists, and you're here as much as anything, also a friend. Thank God I don't get up and do that show you do in the morning. I don't even know what that thing is. It takes place at an hour that I only like to see once a day. Um, DVR works. Five is a PM time for me, not an AM time. We see each other in the morning sometimes. And you've written this book, The Big Lie, Election Chaos, Political Opportunism in the State of American Politics After 2020, which we're going to spend a lot of time on today. But as a Trumpologist, as someone who's paid so much attention to him, do you think in that moment when he's all the things he didn't want to say, how much of that do you think is just him? He's got that gut kind of feral instinct and he understands that his power derives from his connection to his people. He doesn't want to ever do anything that alienates them or could separate him from them. But how much do you think in that moment on January 7th, he was thinking, 
I might run again. And if I run again, it's going to be driven by the notion that it was stolen from me. And so I can't ever say anything that compromises that. Well, first of all, I will sincerely say I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> I think that in terms of Trump, first of all, your first point is correct. He never, ever will condemn pieces of his base. They're everything to him. All of his policies, all of his politics aimed at that same 32, 33, 35% of the electorate. And that's what that moment in the first general election debate, he wouldn't condemn the Proud Boys because he knew that even that hate group who he told to stand back and stand by, they were his people. They voted for him. That's what fueled his refusal to condemn the people in Charlottesville. These were white supremacists, but he knew they were his people. So therefore he assigned blame on both sides of that clash. That day, that speech he gave on January 7th from the White House was one he didn't want to give, but he was pushed into it because he was hearing from his daughter, Ivanka Trump, but also his allies in conservative circles, including, as the committee laid out, Sean Hannity, who texted the White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, correctly saying at that moment, there was real momentum for the 25th Amendment, which could have removed him from office. Cabinet members were resigning. Right. There was talk that they could indeed, with the vice president's help, maybe pull Trump out of his job. Now, Pence put a stop to that soon enough. But at that moment, Trump was concerned that he might be forced out. And his concern about that, just as it was about getting acquitted in his subsequent impeachment trial that took place in February, if he had been either of those things, he wouldn't be able to run again. So it's not that he was in that moment committed to 2024, but it was at least for the people I've talked to around him, it was at least on the radar. Liz Cheney, and I believe Sherman Thompson said that there's going to be more hearings now and that they feel like the dam is either broken or just about to break and they're not going to stop. But this is clearly an end of a kind, right? The people who work on the television side of the hearings, you know, are talking about season two. Are we going to get renewed for season two? Because that's how they've seen this to the great benefit of the committee. They took the television and the storytelling aspects of it very seriously. But I'm curious about if, if they went to prime time, do you think that they paid it off? There's a lot of very strong stuff in the hearing, and I'm not being critical. I think they've done an incredible job. Every other one of the hearings had a big news pop where people went, <gasps> it didn't feel like that was true in this last one, and they were in prime time. So you could argue that they were trying to do a summation of kinds, right? Um, but I, I wonder how you compare that hearing to the other six. Yeah, if in the TV analogy here, it did feel a little bit like a clip show, that it was sort of a greatest hits, because we've known for a while what Trump did that day. There's been reporting from my colleagues and myself, as well as accounts from Republican senators who got on the phone with White House aides and the president himself. They knew that for those 187 minutes, he was in that private dining room off the Oval Office watching on television. We've been talking about that for a while. Now, it had a little extra impact that we heard that yesterday from his own staffers who were saying, yes, the president was watching television. The one new detail that I picked up was simply the account from Secret Service agents surrounding the vice president, how alarmed they were for their safety and the safety of their protectee, that they were concerned right. with the riders just a few feet away, that not only was Pence's life in danger, but so was their own. And they were even calling their colleagues to pass on messages to their loved ones in case they never saw them again. So that was a chilling detail, but you're right, there was no big reveal. That said, it did have a sense of a season finale where it wrapped up everything we've seen so far and we will get a couple others, it sounds like, probably tied to the release of the report the committee is going to put out. Right. But this was about messaging. And it really felt like it was putting all in one place their case. And they're hoping to do two things. Politically weaken Donald Trump, and polls suggest that's happened at least a little. But also present it to the Department of Justice and say, Attorney General Merrick Garland, here you go. I mean, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on the service, but 
it's worth raising because it has been the news this week, and, and our friend, Brother Joe Scarborough, has been on the warpath about this, I think, rightly so. The notion He's mentioned that, it a few times. Yeah, a few times, so, and forcefully. And again, I'm with him. You know, I mean, I, I find it amazing because of the thing you just pointed to, some of the Secret Service radio traffic and some things that an anonymized national security official from inside the White House said about what was being said, you realize those text messages would have been like Flight 93 text messages. There would have been text messages from some service agents who were texting their wives to say, I might not get out of this alive. But it opened the door into that, starting to imagine what it is that the Secret Service deleted when they deleted all those text messages. And there's this compounding scandal because of the role of DHS and other things. Where do you think that goes? I mean, do you think there's ever going to be accountability to the service on this? I know people on the left who have spouted what I thought were semi-paranoid conspiracy theories about the military or law enforcement or the service all being in Trump's pocket and that if it ever became to an armed coup that he had sleeper cells all over the place. But this is the kind of thing that makes you go, yeah, I don't know if I go that far, but that's it's pretty sinister. It makes you at least take a pause. We've reported our colleagues have done as well. There's certainly some pro-Trump sympathies in the Secret Service and some of those agents still on duty, which has alarmed some people close to President Biden. You know, no one's suggesting that they would ever do anything, but it's it's raised some eyebrows. But their behavior around January 6th, it is inexcusable. And the word cover up is one that's been mentioned here in Washington repeatedly this week. The timeline is clear. There is a phone data migration. Fine. That's set for the end of January. Those agents were repeatedly warned to preserve the records. All federal government employees have to preserve the records. It's the law, even on a routine day. And nothing about January 5th or 6th was a routine day. And they, of course, despite even 10 days after, I believe, the insurrection, congressional investigators said, hey, make sure you keep all those text messages. You know, we're going to want to look at those. And 10 days later from that, the data migration happened anyway. And at this point, they do believe those messages are gone forever. They're still exhausting their means of trying to find them. They're not hopeful. I think they're going to be pressure here on the administration to hold the current DHS accountable. It's not clear where that's going yet. There's reviews that have been commissioned. Congress wants an investigation. It's possible a few heads will roll on this, but we're probably never going to get to know exactly what were in those texts, which, yes, some might just be from panicked agents worried about their safety, but it also could describe the situation around Vice President Pence, but also, of course, around President Trump, who we know was haranguing his own detail to try to get to the Capitol. And then these agents, of course, would also be able to provide accounts of what president was doing once he got back to the White House. It it defies logic, common sense, and anything that you or I know about politics from our combined 9,000 years of doing this, that the Secret Service got rid of these text messages by accident and that there wasn't someone somewhere who was like, there's shit in here we don't want people to see. The service is a weird thing. The service was sometimes the source of some damaging personal leaks about Bill Clinton. There's always been more of a conservative, as there generally has been in law enforcement over the years, a more conservative bias. And and it's clear that some of those agents, at least, are full-on MAGA. So I want to play another piece of sound, though, from the hearing related to this unnamed national security advisor inside the White House describing in an interview with the committee what the view was, his view, and others in the White House when they learned that Trump wanted to really go to the Capitol and lead the people who had been at his rally, lead them up there, become part in some way of the insurrection. And I thought this was really striking because of the language that this official used and what its potential political and legal implications might be. So let's take a listen to that. To be completely honest, uh, we were all in a state of shock. Because why? Because, because it's just... One, I think the actual physical feasibility of doing it, and then also we all knew what that implicated and what that meant, that this was no longer a rally, that this 
was going to move to something else if he physically walked to the Capitol. I, I don't know if you want to use the word insurrection, coup, whatever. We all knew that this would move from a normal uh, democratic, you know, public event into something else. Uh, the president wanted to lead tens of thousands of people to the Capitol. Um, I think that was enough grounds for us to be alarmed. Yes, sufficient ground for alarm, no question about it. And just to hear someone from inside the White House using the words insurrection and coup is striking. Here's my question. As you said, maybe the committee, we get a couple more hearings, they're still going to do investigative work, but probably the bulk of their work is done. And now the, the action goes to the Department of Justice. And what does Merrick Garland do? There are two statutes that Liz Cheney and others cite as potential things that Trump could be charged criminally with, the obstruction of Congress charge and the seditious conspiracy charge. Hearing someone say, from inside the White House, say that him wanting to march to the Capitol suggested to him that this was an anti-democratic a coup, an insurrection or whatever, that's one thing. Andrew Weissman, big time former federal lawyer, was on TV last night saying, really powerful politically, but not at all legally meaningful, and that what you need to get at the question of seditious conspiracy is you have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Trump had every reason to think that what he was doing would lead to violence and that was trying to actually, in an active way, provoke violence in that way. And that the secondhand testimony of some guy in the White House, again, powerful clip, but not meaningful to the question of, can you charge him? And so my question to you, Jonathan, is in all the reporting you've done, what do you know and what do you think about how fertile the ground is going to be for the DOJ if it goes in this direction in terms of finding either by the lifting of privilege and people actually telling the world what Trump was saying that day, or through further investigation that ties him more directly to the Proud Boys, to the Oath Keepers, to the actual groups that were committing the violence. What do you think and know about that area of inquiry? Because that's at the core of the biggest charge that could be brought against him. Well, there's nothing Donald Trump revels more in than the image of people fighting for him on TV. Now, usually he wants that to be an interview on Fox News, but in this case, he reveled in it because people were actually physically fighting for him on television outside the Capitol that day. And we know that he was made aware that people in the crowd at the Ellipse may have had weapons, but he said that, well, that won't be a problem to me. They're not here to get me. So that's would potentially be a piece of this, that he was sending an armed crowd up Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol. I think there's a lot of smoke, but whether the Department of Justice thinks there's fire is a different matter. We did hear from Attorney General Merrick Garland just a couple of days ago asked about this and he showed more passion and a little more intensity on this issue than he had before, basically chiding his yeah. questioner saying, look, justice takes time. We're working. This might just go slowly. And he said that no one was above the law. That would include the sitting and now former president of the United States. Because, John, you know, you well know that there's an extraordinary amount of impatience among Democrats about Merrick Garland. They're wondering why he hasn't moved on this yet asking what more could you possibly need to know. I've reported some of that impatience, well, it exists in the upper levels of the West Wing as well, who view Garland maybe more as a judge than prosecutor. But it would be a tricky political calculation. What would be the impact? Even if you have stated that no one is above the law, what would be the impact of charging a former president of the United States with a crime? And that same person, right now, the leading contender to be the nominee of his party, for the next election, too. And it's that thinking, that last part, of course, which is also yeah. fueling Trump's desire to announce his candidacy sooner than anyone in the Republican Party would want him to do. There was an op-ed this week, I think, by Richard Benveniste, who's one of the f- former lawyers on the Watergate committee. It was, it was basically being very respectful to Garland and saying, you should be careful. This is a big deal, Merrick. But 
the clock is ticking. You have six months, basically. You got to get it together here. And there are people in the world that I know who know that Richard Benvenista has a lot of friends in the Biden administration who thought that that op-ed was basically a cutout for, if not Joe Biden himself, then a lot of senior White House people who are his attitude is they're trying to send a message to Garland, maybe not you know, directly using him as a megaphone, but kind of that that reflects the view. Is that your sense? I mean, first of all, do you think that extends all the way to Biden himself? And second of all, is that your sense that there is consensus in the upper levels of the White House right now that at a minimum, DOJ has to take this up, at least convene a grand jury and see if there's enough there to get an indictment or two? The White House is so careful to avoid the appearance of interfering with the Department of Justice. We know they believe that Donald Trump did so repeatedly, and they feel like that they cannot do the same, that these are separate, sacred institutions, and they won't meddle. That said, privately, yes, there there is a sense in the upper circles of Biden world, and I'm told the president himself, that believes that Donald Trump is an existential threat to the nation. What he did on January 6th does deserve to receive a criminal charge. Look, they're well aware of what that could mean. It would be a striking and divisive moment in our country. Donald Trump still has a lot of people who really like him. And it would be perceived, fairly or not, as a political move. And certainly we can imagine what Trump's response would be were this to happen. I think that people that I've talked to still think it's more unlikely than not. They don't think this will happen. In short, they don't believe that Trump will eventually be charged. The door is open to it more today than it ever has been because of the evidence presented by the committee, of course, But also people saw that op-ed. Also people really saw Garland's comments this week, which were a striking new tone from the Attorney General. I have one more sot to play from the hearing, and that's Liz Cheney, who you always have to come back to because I don't care what anybody says. Without Liz Cheney, almost none of this is possible. And a bunch of Democrats, they're all really smart, whatever. If this didn't have Liz Cheney primarily and Adam Kinzinger, the likelihood of it having the kind of impact that it has, whatever that ends up being, would be much smaller. Here's Liz Cheney. This is a part of her closing remarks from the end of this hearing where she puts a very fine point on things related to Donald Trump. In our hearing tonight, you saw an American president faced with a stark and unmistakable choice between right and wrong. There was no ambiguity, no nuance. Donald Trump made a purposeful choice to violate his oath of office, to ignore the ongoing violence against law enforcement to threaten our constitutional order. There is no way to excuse that behavior. It was indefensible. And every American must consider this. Can a president who is willing to make the choices Donald Trump made during the violence of January 6th ever be trusted with any position of authority in our great nation again? So that is a big question. She obviously believes the answer to that question is fuck no. And I would say many people agree with her, all Democrats, and some people who are not hardcore Democrats. But you know, as you write in this book, The Big Lie, Election Chaos, Political Opportunism, and the State of American Politics After 2020, we're going to discuss the orange later. You talk about the censure of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger by the Republican Party that happened not that long ago, that RNC meeting in like February of this year, I believe, right? So we can be in agreement that these hearings have been different and better and more effective than a lot of congressional hearings are. And that's all been kind of chopped up over the course of the last month and a half. Do you think Liz Cheney is in any better place relative to the Republican Party as the result of this? Or is the Republican Party still basically, if they had to do it again tomorrow, they would censure her for her being against Donald Trump and, and calling a spade a spade on this question? Has she moved the needle at all for herself 
in terms of her relationship to this party that she's been part of her whole life? I think it's a question of degrees. That same February National Party meeting where they censured Cheney and Kinzinger, they also deemed, as part of the official party platform, that January 6th was legitimate political discourse. Therefore, sort of codifying what happened on January 6th as being okay. And what these hearings have done, I think we can see it in the polls, we can see in the conversations we have with top Republicans, they've wounded Trump. Some, at least to this point, do not appear to have delivered a fatal blow. That he is still, even if his support has dropped a little, and it has among Republicans, he's still far and away the favorite in 2024 if he jumps in. There seem to be more Republicans at least willing to consider taking him on, including his Vice President Mike Pence, who seems to be gearing up for his own presidential run, even if Trump were to jump in. Governor DeSantis of Florida, another who at least will consider it, but I think you and I both have our skepticisms about how effective that candidacy would be against Trump. But I think the Republican Party, even if there are more voices than there were who wish Trump wouldn't run again, or at the very least stop talking about 2020, they're going to largely remain silent. He's still the powerhouse. He still has the base. He still is the most popular Republican. It's still his party. Even if a moment comes where it's not the party of Trump, it's the party of Trumpism. And certainly those that look to inherit his mantle are adhering largely to what his core beliefs and what rallied his faithful. And as for Cheney, at least for now, polling shows she's going to get blown out in her Republican primary. So she is someone who perhaps will mount her own 2024 presidential bid, that's been rumored too, as a different type of Republican. But at least right now, her hold on her own seat's in jeopardy. There's a real chance that if there are indeed more January 6th hearings in September, October, yeah, she'll already be a lame duck on her way out when it happens. Man, I mean, now that this is over, it might be a good idea to go ahead out there. I forget what the date of that primary is, but like, it's an amazing thing. You know, I think she's doing this for the right reason. I know she wants to be president of the United States. And so if you're going to take this on for the right reasons, which is that you're trying to save the country and trying to get rid of Donald Trump, she's a political animal, just like her dad. And she still thinks she has a future. This woman does not be a, go be a lobbyist if she loses. She was going to be trying to figure out her way to get back into power. Is your view that, as you think about her, that what she thinks is that the only way for it to work for her is that if she can somehow get the Republican Party to be like it used to be, which is, a, you know, in her mind, in her dad's mind, a, a respectable a democratic institution, this is the only path. The only path back for her to have power again is for the party to somehow get broken, Trump to be purged, and then maybe you can rebuild it? Or do you think she actually thinks there's some third path where she could go off and become like an independent or something because she's getting a lot of love from a lot of liberals, which I think if she thought that, I would regard that as delusional. But what's your She view? gets a lot of love for liberals for her performance at January 6th hearing. She gets no love for liberals for her voting record otherwise, which was largely in support of Donald Trump's agenda yeah. and yeah. post-Trump too. She, she's been a staunch opponent of just about anything the Biden administration and Democrats are trying to do. She's a political animal, but it does seem to be a little more of a principled stance here as well. She does believe that Donald Trump is a danger to her party. And yes, as part of that, she needs her party to go back to what it used to be for her to have any real future there. So these ideas are intertwined. I think it's clear in her comments that she finds Trump just so loathsome and so dangerous that yes, that is what's fueling her. But she also knows Trump has to, to use your word, be purged from the party for her to have any real chance there. And right now with that her primary, I believe, is in August. I mean, she's down double digits in the last random polls. Her grip on her seat, at least for now, is tenuous, and her political future beyond that would really depend on damaging Trump and Trumpism to the point where she could mount some sort of comeback. All right, and with that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of Jonathan Lemire here on Hell and High Water. 
Welcome back to Hell and High Water. All right, let's step back now and get a little more into this great and magical new book. I pull it up here again. Here it is. You've come a long way, Lemire, and now here you are, author of The Big Lie, Election Chaos, Political Opportunism, and the State of American Politics After 2020. It used to be just a humble daily news tabloid scribe. The next thing you know, you're tapping them out for the Associated Press, and all of a sudden, now you're like big time, big time Lemire. So here's what I want to play. Crack this book open. If you ever wondered, where did this big lie thing start? You've got it right there in the prologue. You tell this story about being on the campaign trail covering Trump for the Associated Press in 2016. As you describe, it's a sleepy August day in Ohio, in Columbus. We're going to play Donald Trump planting the first seeds of what would become the big lie. We got almost 14 million votes. Think of that. More than anybody in the history of Republican primaries. And remember this, I had 17 people. I, didn't, I wasn't running against two people. I had 17 people. Hillary Clinton, I got a similar number to Hillary Clinton, and she had Bernie, and she had a hard time putting Bernie away. And Bernie, poor Bernie, he looked so upset. He, you know what? He made a mistake. He shouldn't have made a deal. Sometimes he, he lost. He lost. First of all, it was rigged. And I'm afraid the election's going to be rigged. I have to be honest. And there it was. I know you led with it in your piece in the AP. When you heard him say it, did you say, holy fuck? Like, what did Donald Trump just say? Yeah, it was a thunderbolt. It was. It was a noon rally. It was, you know, reasonably well attended, but hardly a huge crowd. Monday afternoon in Columbus, Ohio, at the convention center. Went into the day, not sure what the lead would be. Heard that, immediately started reaching out to my editor and said, wait a minute, he just said that. He had during the Iowa caucus floated the idea that the RNC and Ted Cruz were ganging up on him. But that was poor sportsmanship. This was different. This was him saying that the most sacred democratic institution, the ballot, the election, was not going to be conducted fairly. We had never been there before as a country. And it was. It was just a line. He said it. He'd been thinking about it, and he said it, according to the reporting I did afterwards. He mentioned this again on the plane, the private plane, Trump Force One, to a couple of aides later that day. He repeats it again at a rally later that night. One more. It was in Pennsylvania. He repeats it again on Sean Hannity's show. And, you know, you've been to a lot of his rallies, too. You see how he road tests things. He says it. He uses these rallies to test out attacks, almost like a comedian trying out new material. And this one, as you heard in that clip, didn't really generate much of a reaction in Ohio. But it eventually did. The more he talked about it, the more he convinced people. And suddenly, his allies were parroting to it, too. In fact, in the book... I uncover an old Roger Stone interview take around that time where he talks about how Trump should just declare victory, even if he loses, and basically creating a playbook that he would use four years later, Stone even saying, well, if we don't win, there might be violence, which of course we also would see. That moment began the big lie. Now, a few months later in the general yeah, election yeah. debate is also when he said it again, and also for the first time said he wouldn't necessarily concede. Now, he won that election, of course, but the seeds had been planted. And it's interesting, right? If you read The Big Lie, the great thing about it, a lot of context. If you follow, it's like the birth of an idea. It's like the birth of the worst idea ever is really what this is. I mean, it's a Trump book, but it's really about the story of the birth of this idea, this insidious, ultimately deeply poisonous kind of idea that is still very much alive in our politics. And it goes back and walks you through the whole evolution of it. When he first blurted this thing out, it was right after the Republican convention. But if you remember that late July, early August, he was like in the shitter at that point. 
there were story after story about how fucked he was and how, how Hillary Clinton was going to run him over with the truck. Maggie Haberman and you and other people were writing these stories just about how bad it was. This was pre-Bannon. I mean, Bannon comes in about a week after this, right? That was how desperate he was. I think he burped this idea up in his desperation as much as anything else. And as you say, he like burps these ideas up and then he comes back to them later and expands them and does various things. Everybody thought in that moment, even more than they did in the last couple of weeks of the election, it was like, he's going to get just steamrolled by Hillary Clinton. But then that little bit stuck and he was off to the races. Yep. Is, that, is that basically right? Yeah. And part of it was to, to create an excuse for his inevitable loss because he could read the polls like anybody else. Yeah. He was way down at that moment. Things got worse before they got better. And then he rallied and sort of pulled himself into the race a little bit. And then of course was dealt the blow from Axis Hollywood. And then he started his counteroffensive with that stunt in St. Louis, which I will say as someone who's man been to a couple hundred Trump rallies and, and so on, that was still the most stunning moment of that entire 2016 campaign. In fact, there's a, a photograph of me, which thankfully not included in the book of when they brought us in before that second debate against St. Louis at the yes, end you're of talking about the, about Bill Clinton's about Bill Clinton's accusers yeah. here the women yeah, who this, was, this, this again was... recounted in the book Juanita Braddock all that so when Trump brought all of the Bill Clinton's female accusers from his uh, career in politics his checkered past brought them all and had a, a press conference just about what about 90 minutes before the debate if I remember right it was not even that it was about 20 minutes before the debate <laughs> and it was done as a surprise yeah. and they brought in the press pool which I was a part of and they didn't tell us what we were going to see and my jaw literally dropped and there's a picture of me with my mouth open with Steve Bannon cackling behind me but that changed the conversation and the race stabilized over the next few weeks and then when Comey began reviewing the Clinton yeah. emails again, that was the burst of life that the Trump campaign needed there in the final stretch. So what is it that made you decide to do the book? I mean, I joke with you all the time. We'll talk about your career in a minute. You host a show at this ungodly hour of the morning. You have this big job at Politico. You've got a kid. you got a wife. On top of all that, what was it that made you think, hey, yeah, writing a book, that's a good idea? Was that just like you had no idea what you were getting into? Or are there two of you? Have you figured out the cloning or like space-time continuum problem where you have an extra day in your week or something that I don't have. <laughs> I wish. My day does start at about 3.15 a.m. And then it's, of course, my show and then a couple couple hours with our friends Joe and Mika every day. And then from there, but the book, it certainly was a challenge to write. And we also did it on a very compressed deadline in order to make it as timely as possible to get it out this summer ahead of the midterms. And as, yeah. as it turned out, yeah. coinciding with these hearings. So it, it was a lot of work and it was extraordinarily intense. But... I felt like it was a story that had to be told. I didn't want to write just another Trump campaign book. The idea of this lie, his lie, which is everything about his career is based on lies. Some of them are exaggerations, harmless, others far more insidious. But he's someone who's always been about illusion and about convincing others and sometimes himself of a different reality. And that's what I found so compelling was this idea is to examine how that happened, how he hijacked the Republican Party and the conservative media with lies big and small in order to do it. And then January 6th, it's not totally a January 6th book either. January 6th, in many ways, is the culmination yeah, of it. Right. But I also yeah. found really interesting how everything that's happened since and how it's shaped right. the post-January 6th politics. The state legislature is restricting access to the ballot, how it's challenged the Biden administration and Democrats, and how, as we're talking about right now, a litmus test for Republican candidates in the 2022 elections. Well, and it's interesting because there are two things that come to mind. One, I know what a crash schedule this is on, not just because I know you, but because here's a little secret to all of our listeners who don't know anything about the book business. How you know a book was done on a crash basis is, does it have an index or not? If the book doesn't have an index, it was done on a crash basis. If it does have an index, it wasn't, because it turns out in the book business that indexing a book, it takes a long fucking time. And so if you're really trying to race to get a book out and you look at the book, this book doesn't have an index. I don't mind 
mind it not having an index, but that's how you know that the person was really pushing their deadline. Again, I think for good reason, journalists who write books want to like try to get everything in and, and have the things be f- as fresh as possible and don't want to be on these ridiculous, oh, I'll turn my book in and then it'll come out a year from now. Schedule it doesn't really work, especially if you're covering American politics in this moment. The second thing I'll say is this, something I hadn't thought of before. Maybe you even haven't thought of because the point you just made about, you said Trump made his career on lies. And this is really kind of the big lie is the biggest lie. As you go out and promote this book, are you going to say that the book is titled The Big Lie? Or are you going to say that the book is titled The Big Lie? Hmm. It's That's a good question. Uh, I mean, The Big Lie. I'm not kidding. It's a serious question because in a way, the whole thing is you could go with The Big Lie because it's the biggest of Trump's lies, the most important, most pernicious. But I think most people will say The Big Lie. And I ask it only because Game Change used to be like this also. It's like, is it game change or is it game change? And people pronounce it different ways and they're kind of different meanings. So you have to figure that out before you start doing this on live television next week. I guess the episode will be more on the lie, but it's a good point and one I will ponder. But the consequences of this are just so great. It has fundamentally changed where we are. Trump is not off stage. And you're right to the timeless of the book. I mean, there are things in this book from May, not even two months ago. Yeah, it's certainly, it's yeah, certainly yeah, the yeah. war. The war in Ukraine is part of that. That last chapter in particular really shows how Trump's asserting himself back on the stage. And that is what also I found so compelling is the lie bridges two presidents. And as someone who's now covered is covering his second president intimately day after day, the Trump administration, and now the Biden one, seeing how both administrations are trying to grapple with it. Also, I found sort of an irresistible topic, even on a brutally tough deadline. Right. So for a lot of people who didn't know you made your first appearance on Morning Joe in, in 2017. You were not a familiar face on television, largely. And then this thing happened when you were accompanying Trump, covering him on a daily basis for the Associated Press as a White House correspondent, and you went with Trump to Helsinki in July of 2018. And you asked a question at the press conference that was the most notable question of that press conference and got replayed on television around the world. I, I need to tell you, you, a person who was a very hardworking, very diligent print reporter, suddenly became a face that people knew because you were asking Trump this a very important question about the 2016 election, and he was forced to answer it in a way that made news. Question for each president. President Trump, yes. you first. Um, just now, President Putin denied having anything to do with the election interference in 2016. Every U.S. intelligence agency has concluded that Russia did. What, who, my first question for you, sir, is who do you believe? My second question is, would you now, with the whole world watching, Tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016, and would you warn him to never do it again? My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me, and some others, they said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. That's the compressed version of the the answer, because he had the prologue there where he rambled on about servers and crazy shit for a little while that I don't really want to play. You knew that question was going to generate news. That's why you asked it. What was it like to suddenly be like on every fucking television? I mean, I don't think there was a broadcast television or cable television network in the world that didn't have your question as part of their package for weeks thereafter, right? You're like Madonna all of a sudden. Yeah, it didn't go by just one name, but you're right. You know, I had started you, doing- You do to me. You do to me. You're, you'll always just be Lemire. Lemire. No, actually, that's true. Actually, I do go by one name. I think a lot of people in the MSNBC world just refer to me as Lemire. I, you know, I had done cable there for a few months. I had been a contributor, but you're right. Prior to 2017, had not done much. And certainly that was the moment to change my career in a lot of ways. And I knew going into that news conference that that was the question to ask. You know, he had gotten versions of it along the way. But it was going to have a different meaning and a different 
importance when he answered it standing next to Vladimir Putin. This was the height of the Mueller investigation. We didn't know where that was going. He had faced these questions of collusion and election interference since 2016. And, you know, so many of his foreign policy moves seemed to benefit Moscow. And this was a moment that people really wanted to know what was going on. It was a behind the scenes lobbying campaign in order to be position to get that question, to get an yeah. opportunity to ask it. Mm-hmm. And then you're right. I knew he'd make news. I had a feeling he would answer it poorly. I didn't expect yeah. him to answer it that <laughs> poorly, uh, where he basically threw his lot in with Putin and not yeah. refused to denounce anything. And then as a postscript, you might recall, I then did ask Putin a question as well. And I'll just note that when Putin answers your yeah. question, he doesn't break eye contact, which is a little bit unnerving. But I asked him if, because this was the other hot topic that was out there, I asked him if he or his government had any compromise on Donald Trump or his family. And Putin gave this like long-winded answer as he often does, in which he just simply said like, oh, it would be difficult to get that kind of material on every prominent American who comes to Russia and never actually gave a denial. He was too busy using his photographic KGB memory to permanently imprint your face on his brain to give a real answer so that he could then send that information to the KGB. Uh, I would uh, certainly probably uh, not be welcome in Russia, nor would I drink tea in the presence of that. Yeah, I wouldn't go back. If I were you, I wouldn't go back there. Yeah, you'll be killed. I mean, I I don't think you should do that. But here's my question, and this is the kind of question that'll be interesting because AP reporters, daily news reporters, even, you know, a lot of print reporters don't ever talk about the thing I'm about to ask you in a real way, at least not in public. And I've read The Big Lie, and you get some sense of this from the book, but it's not like you really go there. So I'm kind of curious about it. You know, Trump has psychodramatic relationships with all the reporters who cover him. You could write two books about his relationship with Maggie, and you could probably do 50 years of therapy. And it's it's not just her. He's got his favorites. They ebb and flow, and they wax and wane. And when I covered him in 2016 in kind of a regular way on the circus, we had a relationship also. And he loved me for a while, then he hated me and still hates me. Tell me about your personal relationship with him. What's the vibe like between you guys? What was it like before that question? What was it like after? Because the one thing we know about Trump is he does not like people getting their faces known on his back. You know, he hates it if you're in Time Magazine because you work for him. He also hates reporters who he thinks have kind of like exploited him in some way. So I wondered what your relationship was like pre-Helsinki and what it was like post-Helsinki and then what it's like today. So first of all, take a step back and say, I covered him a little bit when I was just a general news reporter in New York City, the New York Daily News. And the book includes an anecdote of how he once tried to set me up on a date. That one you'll have to read to get to the rest of that story. But he was someone who, you're right, has a real love-hate relationship with the press. He, he put the media at the center of his campaign and his presidency like no president before him, called us the enemy of the people. But he also had this compulsion where he needed us. He was drawn to us. He needed that auction. He needed that coverage. And certainly his relationship with Maggie is in its own category. But I fell into probably the next tier down where he actively disliked in many ways, but also tried to impress or tried to persuade them of his argument. I I lost track a number of times we'd have a gaggle either on Air Force One or at the White House where there were times where it felt like he was just aiming his questions at me, just trying to talk to me, trying to convince me of a point he was making. And that's because I do think there was, I know there was some real anger after Helsinki. In fact, he chewed out then press secretary Sarah Sanders, that I was allowed to ask a question that day. He's like, why would you let a tough reporter ask me a question? This is someone, he once called me a sleazebag and threw me out of a campaign event. You know, I took some pride in challenging him when I could in these pool sprays when the AP reporter would be one of the few in there. Another time he threw me out of an event because he didn't like the question I asked him in front of Kim Jong-un. And we were then banned from a dinner shortly thereafter to covering that. He though, I think he, 
resented the moment, but also understood that I was a reporter who, at least in his estimation, the voice that mattered. And some of that because of my regular presence on Morning Joe, which we know is a show that he watches religiously, hate watches. And hate I watches, think yeah. that hate watches and seeing me on there more days than not made him solidify the opinion in his mind that I was a reporter that mattered. And, and certainly at, at the book notes in the stretch run of the 2020 campaign, nearly every day, some sort of note from him would be conveyed to me through Kaylee McEnany or others trying to convince me of whatever, you know, some Wisconsin poll that showed that he was doing better than yeah. the mainstream media yeah. would ever give him credit. The question here on the book, just on the totality of it, right? So as we've noted, it's not a campaign book. It's not a, an insurrection book. It really is a story of, a, of an idea and a, a bad idea, a pernicious idea, a poisonous idea, an insidious idea. It's Genesis and it, the various forms it took and how it played itself out, right? You know, in 2020, you record in the book, he does an interview with Chris Wallace where he recapitulates the same thing he'd said on the debate stage to Chris Wallace in 2016, which is that he's not sure he's going to accept the results of the election. COVID hits and there's all the mail-in voting and Trump from the spring on is basically saying, it's rigged. It's going to be rigged. They're going to, the Democrats are going to steal it. you know. And he gets to the point where he's basically saying, there are two possible outcomes in this election. One is I win and the other that's stolen. We hear he's making this argument over months and you lay it all out. He's just building it, building it, building it, right? Over the course of the 2020 election. And you and I were on television and I'm banging the drum about this. This is what's going to happen, guys. And we weren't alone. It's not like it wasn't covered, right? We all banged the drum and screamed from the mountaintops. And then we got to election day and I'm fully prepared for something like this to happen. And then on election night, Donald Trump comes out of the White House and we're all fucking shocked when he does this. Here it is. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list, okay? I remember being chilled by that. I watched it live, and I was like, oh, my God. My question was, though, did we fail? Like, how could it be that he was doing this thing in plain sight and we all saw it and we all talked about it? And yet when it happened, everything that happened from that point forward all the way to January 6th, the press didn't ignore this. The things that we said about it, the ways we covered it had no impact on its perniciousness and on what then unfolded. In fact, things ended up being worse than you could have ever imagined. What's the lesson of that? You know, he's running again, maybe. We're going to have to deal with this again. What do we take from that? Yeah, I think about this a lot because Trump had this, it was in plain sight. And you're right, it didn't go unnoticed. We all talked about it, we did. And yet, we, we did not change its trajectory whatsoever. And I think, on some degree, Trump was such bluster and he would talk about so many things and then it wouldn't happen. And, and there was always a sense that, it's, quote, bad as it was, you know, ah, it could have been worse. He, oh, he never quite goes there, that he's more bark than bite. So maybe there was a sense in the media 
that, yeah, he'd rant and rave for a while, but eventually he would go, if not quietly, but you know, he would go and he would adhere to the norms because as much as he pushed and defied norms, there were still some boundaries of the presidency that he did respect or was forced to respect throughout his tenure. And yet this one he didn't, he crossed the line. And I think we were not the only ones, of course, who let it happen. I think in the book tells the story of how Republicans let it happen. And there's that famous or infamous quote, line quote, that the Washington Post printed a few days after the election, where some Republican operative, and I'm paraphrasing, basically says, well, what's the harm? What's the harm in letting him rant and rave for a while? We know he's not a good loser. He's entitled to file some legal challenges, but eventually he'll stop, he'll go to Mar-a-Lago, he'll golf, he'll fade away. And he didn't, in part because the White House had so hollowed out, he was surrounded only by, you know, team crazy, as they've been deemed. And he believed his own lie, and more than that, the party allowed it to have space to breathe and fester, and so did the conservative media, and the lie reached the people. And I, in the book, recount how some Republican lawmakers who had gone home for Christmas break came back to Washington, being like, this lie is everywhere. All of my constituents are talking yes. about it and believe it. And that really, the drums of, of January 6th were sounding. It's the last page of the book of The Big Lie, Lemire's fabulous new book, The Big Lie, Election Chaos, Political Opportunism, and the State of American Politics After 2020, I just will say, it's very chilling. The Republican Party had allowed itself to be hijacked by Trump, tethering itself to him to fulfill its agenda while turning a blind eye to his tumult and lies. And in just 12 months' time, party leaders have gone from condemning the Capitol attack and Trump himself to downplaying it and finally to coming to terms with it. It was now part of the Republican Party's core belief. The actions and lies that led to the insurrection and the violence itself were acceptable. The big lie was who they were. If that's true, it's a chilling thing. I I agree with it. Is the conclusion to that not the Republican Party is no longer a legitimate political party in America? If they stay with it, it'd be hard to come up with another conclusion. Now, political parties are parties of opportunism. If the wind changes, maybe they'd go another way. If Donald Trump opts against a run, or if he does find himself in some real criminal trouble. But right now, that is they are. I'm going to throw a question back at you based on what you just asked me. How do we as a media cover a Trump 24 candidacy if he still has not conceded 2020, if he is still spouting the big lie, if most, not all, but most of the Republican Party goes along with him? How do we cover him? Do we deem him an insurrectionist presidential candidate? Can we take any of his speeches live? How do we put in the appropriate context knowing that, of course, we'll face cries of bias from Republicans. Hey, you're not being fair to our guy. How do we do it? I mean, look, it's a very big question, but I will say this, and I'm not backing away from answering it. I'm I'm just saying it's a very big question. There's a lot of permutations of this, and different kinds of news organizations are going to have to think about it different ways. But I will tell you that the arguments that we used to have, that people used to have, I didn't have them, but others did, about like, is it okay for the New York Times to use the word lie in its pages? I can't believe this. That sounds like such a, a quaint ridiculous argument that we had. That actually was a real thing in the last five years. People talked about, oh my God, the Times, oh, they say lie. It's like, guys, I think that the answer has to be, and it's the implication of my question about the party, a degree of constant contextualization that is going to seem, by the old standards, is going to seem outrageous, that would seem utterly biased. But the reality is, as you say, this is who the Republican Party is. And Donald Trump tried to stage a coup I don't think there's any doubt about it. The facts are there. You can't let a person who attempted to stage a violent coup to stay in power. You can't 
treat that person ever again as normal. The details exactly of what that means for this organization or that organization, the AP Politico, people are going to have to figure that out. We could talk about that for an hour. But I do know that if any semblance of normalcy comes back to the coverage where we're acting like, yeah, he's just done a new trade policy. Let's cover that without being like, yeah, this guy tried to fucking stage a coup. That's bad. That's not acceptable, I think. And I think the media really is going to have to take this very seriously going forward because our propensity is going to be to go back and just slide back into the comfortable bathwater of trying to treat Trump like he's anybody else. He's not. Yeah, we were tested in 2016. I think meteorizations failed some of those tests. I think the coverage got better as it went along. And I think for the most part, the coverage of 2020, though, as discussed earlier, you know, certainly... We weren't able to alter anything, but I think the coverage was better. The context was there. I remember being part of the team of the AP that went with the word racist to describe his lie about birtherism. That was a big deal, too. So I think we met the moment better in 20 than we did in 16, but 24 will be an entirely new ballgame. It'll be a very difficult conversation for you to figure out. All right, we're going to take one more quick break, and we'll be back with more of Jonathan Lemire here on Hell and High Water. And we're back with Jonathan Lemire here on Hell on High Water. When a book comes out, all these people have these clever new ways to market books, right? The multimedia age and, and people have different ways of going about it. Lemire has come up with an incredible thing to market the big lie. I want to play it right now. Incredible that you came up with this. I was so, so impressed. I'm jumping around the living room of 10 Cedarwood Road to the sound of Glad to See You Go from the Ramones Leave Home. You gotta go, 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 goodbye. Glad to see you go, 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 goodbye. It's 1978, the day of my 18th birthday. These songs are so simple, and yet they express a complexity that's way more relevant to my life than Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, which I've just finished, which took me three and a half weeks to read. This album takes only 29 minutes and 57 seconds. So that was, of course, not actually Jonathan Lemire. That was Bono from U2. And unless, Jonathan, unless there's some whole history of yours that I don't know about, where like you listened to the Ramones and lived on Cedarwood Road, you know, I don't know anything about that side of you, but maybe there's a story there to tell. My years on the north side of Dublin. Yeah. Yeah. I played it because Lemire is a huge U2 head. And I ask you, hey, I just wanted to hear Bono talk. So, so delightful. So compelling. It's the only person I could do this kind of like promo. You listen to him talk, you're like, oh, listen to how this is like great, right? Yeah. How much are you looking forward to that book coming out? The book's called Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story, coming out in November. They're playing at the Kenny Center Honors, apparently, also around the same time in December, right? Just so. announced yesterday. Very excited. That's White House Pool Duty I'm going to pull rank to get. <laughs> I thought it was fascinating, though, that they did this thing with YouTube, because if you thought about all that, whenever anybody is something new, I mean, I know he's a rock star. I know who he is and everything, but like, it's this animated video on YouTube. Like, what's the most innovative thing you're going to do to sell the big lie for real? Oh, I'm also going to go on an arena and stadium tour in 2023, much like the boys from the band. I will say outrageously excited for that book. I do worry. We've talked about this. It does seem like they're moving into a more reflective stage of their career. We'll see what sort of new music they still produce, but I'm hopeful they've got one or two more killer albums. Yeah, me too, man. And you know, hey, you know, every once in a while, Dylan still pops one out that's kind of brilliant. And I hope that that's the case with these guys too. You know, we talked a little bit about your career a second ago, and I just want to raise it a little bit more here. You said that the Helsinki thing changed some things for you. You became part of the Morning Joe gang in a deep way. 
in that 2019 kind of headed in the 2020 cycle. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you're not just on that show, which is bad. I mean, again, I'm doing this since 2007 and I still can't believe I get up even two days a week to do it. It's brutal. And then you somehow accept the notion that you're going to go do this other show that starts at 5 a.m. A, did you ever imagine that you'd end up basically being a television personality? And B, that you would be a television personality who had to go to work every day for a show that came out at 5 a.m. When you put it that way, it makes you rethink some things. I No, I certainly never anticipated that. I mean, and look, I love to report. I love to write, as evidenced by this book. And because of that, I'm perhaps the fool who didn't give up his day job when he went to do TV. I've certainly moved from AP to Politico, but I'm you know still four or five bylines a week for them. The TV, it's early, but it's it's a, it, I will encourage your listeners, you set your DVR if you don't want to get up. It's a good show. And as I did more and more TV, 2017, 18, 19, and so on, I found that I grew to like it and had opportunities to do some guest hosting and, you know, wanted to get better at it. And at this point, I like being able to do that as well. And, and certainly the Morning Joe Gang has my forever gratitude for the opportunity. And it's, it's going well. And John, you have an open invitation anytime you want to come on at 5 a.m. We'll put you in the back half of the show. You can sleep in a little bit. You can Zoom. It's fine. You don't have to come to the studio. We'll take you on Zoom. So are you talking to, are you talking to somebody on this podcast? <laughs> I don't know who you're talking to. So whoever that was addressed to, it certainly wasn't. Fair enough. I would love to come. At some point, I'll come on the show. You know, way too early is, is for me way too early. But, but I'll come on. I promise. Have I never been on with you? No. I've never been on with you yet so no. far. <laughs> okay. okay. We got we to break that schneid. I'll come on there. Here's I want to get just a couple questions in here about current politics, sure. right? So Biden gets COVID. I mean, look, assuming the guy is going to be fine, you know, he was going to get it eventually. There's a lot of reflective thumb sucking about, obviously it was a transformative thing in the 2020 election. They took great care, but eventually he was going to get it. And it's nobody's fault. It's going to be fine. But here's the thing. This thing happened a couple of weeks ago, like July 12th. He's coming out of some White House picnic and he gets confronted by some reporters about the fact that there's a bunch of people in the Democratic Party who don't want him to run for re-election. So I want to play that. Mr. President, what's your message to Democrats who don't want you to run again? They want me to run. Two-thirds say they Read don't. Read the polls. Read the polls, Jack. You guys are all the same. That poll showed that 92% of Democrats, if I ran, would vote for me. A majority of Democrats say they don't want you to run again in no. 2024. 92% said if I did, they'd vote for me. You cover him now on a regular basis. He's obviously a contrast with Trump. I don't like... I mean, again, don't just say this is like Joe Biden. It's kind of crazy to me that he's like, look at the polls. Look at the polls. Dude, I've read the polls. The polls are not great. Like, what are you doing? Why are you on a rope line? You know, telling people, go look at the polls. The polls are not good for Joe Biden. I know he doesn't have any discipline, but what do you what do you think the mindset is there right now around this question, around how Biden is is thinking about the choices ahead. I'm going to leave it that open. I think right now he thinks he's running for a re-election. The world's going to change. There's going to be a, a midterm, et cetera. How do you think that he and his advisors are thinking about it? Because it is a deafening thing now in the Democratic Party of like, he can't run again. That's the thing that a lot of Democrats say. Any Biden answer that ends with Jack, spectacular. You know you've asked the right question <laughs> if you get a Jack and the response. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. This is, I mean, first, just quick briefly on covid mild symptoms. They believe he's going to be fine. The White House shifted their tone a few months ago, basically saying it's inevitable. He's going to get it. He'll be fine because he's double vaccinated, double boosted, despite his age, you know, 79 being a high risk category. He'll be fine. And we have reason to believe that he will be. But it does underscore, first of all, as a senior White House person put it to me yesterday, it's like, what next? It's just one more blow right now for an administration that's somewhat reeling that has had some real success on the foreign policy stage. I mean, even Republicans, for the most part, give Biden credit 
for the way he's rallied the West to back up Ukraine against Russia, that, that doesn't yeah. win you any votes. And right now, they're hurting, and this is just one more obstacle. In terms of his future, it has become, and it's been a steady drumbeat over the last two or three months, what will he do? And I think there's a growing sentiment among Democrats that you know, I've talked to, I'm sure you talked to, that will be forever grateful for Joe Biden for beating Donald Trump, but are not sure he's yeah. the right man to beat Trumpism, that he is sort of not the face of the party going forward, and they look at his poll numbers, which are admittedly bad. His future, though, I think is, and you're right, White House aides both publicly and privately say we're doing all the things one does to run again. And no one's expecting a decision until at some point in 2023, the midterm's clear. Joe Biden, though, not known for making speedy decisions, and there's some of the Democratic Party that fear that could stretch beyond, say, spring of 23 and enter in the summer and fall when it really mm-hmm. might hinder the ability to rally a field if he doesn't run. But I think the biggest question is his future seems so intertwined with that of Donald Trump's. And, right. and that is the people that I talk to that say no final decision has been made. The first lady is going to have a big say about this. But Biden has consistently told people, I'm the one person who has beat Trump. I'm the one right. person who can beat Trump. And if Trump does run again, I don't know that it's a 100% sure thing, but it certainly looks like he's going to. It'd be hard for Joe Biden not to as well, even though that would mean if he were to win again, he'd finish his second term at the age of 86. I know, closer to 90 than 80, which is a tough thing. And I got to say, you know, uh, so someone very close to Biden, I mean, very close to Biden, who said, you know, uh, yeah, it's true. It's, nobody wants to have the conversation with him. But even if they did, you know what he'd say. That's all he's ever done. His whole life has been running for office, right? That's how he keeps score on his career. And as soon as somebody goes to him and says, listen, uh, Mr. President, whether it's in the interest of your health or the party or anything else, you probably need to step aside. His answer is going to be, hey, everybody in the room, everybody gather around. How many people here have run against Donald Trump before? No hands. I don't see any hands. I'm the only one, huh? Interesting. How many times have I run against him once? How many times have I beaten him once? Has anybody else in the country run against him and beat him? No. So shut the fuck up, which is there's an answer to that, of course, but the ego of a politician who looks at his win-loss record and says, I saved the country. I beat him when Hillary Clinton couldn't, when nobody else could. And you're going to tell me now I should step down? I should not run against him? You know, go fuck yourself, which I think is going to be his instinct, even if he ultimately decides not to run. I could not agree more. I mean, I think he's going to he would have a very hard time resisting that that rematch. And I think that, that the stakes would be that much higher this time, though, because of yeah. what from park into our previous conversation because of what Trump did in 2020, how he changed our politics completely, totally. how we'd all have to think about him differently. If he were to run again with no guardrails, possibly him winning again, and he'd be able to say more or less, look at all I did in 2020, including January 6th. I didn't pay a price. I'm president again. Yeah. That puts us in a very new place as a country. And I think the Democrats would say the stakes would be impossibly high. That actually would live up to the title of most important election of our lifetime. Yeah, Donald Trump wins re-election in 2024. It will put the country in a totally new place. It will also put me in a totally new place. It will put me in a place outside the country. Um, because <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I don't want to be jailed. I don't need to be audited. I don't need to be jailed. I don't need to be killed. And those are the only three options if Trump gets re-elected. Here's my last piece of sound, because this is the sound that in, our, in the political world, like the, a leading indicator gives a sense of the wind and weather. Here's Gavin Newsom, who made an ad and put it on television on Fox News over the July 4th weekend, attacking Ron DeSantis. This is like a Rorschach test for our politics right now. Let's play that. It's Independence Day. So let's talk about what's going on in America. Freedom, it's under attack in your state. Your Republican leaders, they're banning books, making it harder to vote, restricting speech in classrooms, even criminalizing women and doctors. 
I urge all of you living in Florida to join the fight or join us in California, where we still believe in freedom, freedom of speech, freedom to choose, freedom from hate, and the freedom to love. Don't let them take your freedom. So I ask you, Lemire, DeSantis attacks Biden almost every week now. He takes the COVID money and gives it to people for something else. He attacks him on inflation. He attacked him last week on immigration. He's running against Biden in some way already. Newsom is now running against, against, apparently running against DeSantis. Is Gavin Newsom getting ready to primary Joe Biden? Gavin Newsom is certainly getting his campaign ready if Joe Biden doesn't run. It remains to be seen whether he would take him on in terms of a primary. That's still a tough ask. You know, even if it's a Democratic president who would be 82, who might have poor poll numbers still, although White House aides will quick to tell you, hey, we've got time to turn that around. And they do. And there's a real scenario where even if the midterms go badly for Democrats, well, they did for Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, too, and they both got reelected. So that, that's the messaging we're hearing from the White House these days. But Newsom there is representing something, too, a Democrat willing to take the fight to the Republicans. And that is what I think a lot of Democrats feel like Joe Biden's not doing, that he is not giving voice to their anger, their frustration about losing existential rights, the right to choose, the right to vote, the right to not get shot in a classroom or a supermarket. And Biden would argue, well, my hands are tied. I've got a 50-50 Senate. Joe Manchin, you know, I'm doing the best I can. And he can point to a number of of legitimate accomplishments. But fair or not, Democrats right now, they just want to feel they do. It shouldn't matter. And there are plenty of politicians or analysts who will say, look, it's about the actual legislation. It's about the scorecard. It's not about tone and feeling. You and I both know sometimes it's about tone and feeling. And right now, Democrats want to feel anger. They want to feel passion. And they feel like they're not getting that from the White House. And someone like a Newsom or a, another governor or candidate like him trying to tap into something. All right. We have one minute left. So here's the lightning round. Literally a lightning round. Okay. Just answer the questions really quickly. All right. Will Trump run or not? Yes. Will DeSantis run in that case? Will he run against Trump? No. No. If they were to run against each other, you think Trump would beat DeSantis, right? I do. Uh, you think I, has, you saw, I hesitated on the Trump answer. I think it's less of a sure thing yeah. than others do. Okay. And he might announce that he's running, but not actually ultimately be on the ballot by the time that he actually gets to the primaries. I think um, that's a real possibility that he yeah. that if some way abandons the run. Yeah. Yeah. The high probability, not certain. You think in the end Biden runs again or not? No. Okay. Then who's the most likely Democratic nominee if it's not Joe Biden in 2024? I mean, this is where I will hedge some. I mean, if the vice president goes in with a lot of advantages, but the field certainly would not clear for her there would be a window there for a Gavin Newsom-like character. I'll tell you, man, very hard for a white man to beat a historic black woman in a Democratic primary. I don't care. No I don't care who you I don't care what you say about Kamala Harris. I don't care what you say about Gavin Newsom or anybody else. You got to win the black vote to win a Democratic nomination. I, and she would have a huge head start on that, even with all of her supposed weaknesses that the Beltway crowd thinks she has. I agree wholeheartedly that though her poll numbers are as bad as Joe Biden's right now, that she, in this scenario will be more formidable than most Democrats want to think at the moment. Odds that the Red Sox make the playoffs? Oh, under 50%. They're not very good this year. Uh, I'm more concerned they lock up Bogart's endeavors for the long term. They might sneak in as a wild card. They're not going anywhere if they do. I predict they fall just short. Going back to that guy who we played before, favorite U2 song? I mean, Where the Streets Have No Name is their best song, I think. My list of favorites is so long, and I have some guilty pleasures along the way. But Where the Streets Have No Name, particularly when they play it live, when the lighthouse lights come on at the beginning, it yeah. is, it's about the most perfect moment in music. I was there Joshua, for the concert after September 11th, yeah, uh, the first show in October of uh, 2001. 
as yeah, a sign. it was incredible. They were with all those, with all those first responders on stage and the yep. tears and the flags. The oh tears. my god, incredible! That Joshua Tree is the best album. Therefore, right? You're not going to de- deviate from. You don't think there's a better. Uh, you know what? I'm an Octum Baby guy. Okay. Yep. All right. I'm okay. That's strong. Guy. That's strong. Uh, and then my last question: Who's your favorite of the Morning Joe hosts? Mike Barnacle. Oh, that's smart. Good ball. Yeah, I don't think he's officially a host, but I was really just no. But it's the only way I'm not going to get in trouble, so I'm going to say Mike. Barnacle. I know. And look, he deserves our love all the time. He doesn't need to be a, an official host to be a spiritual host, and he's in the all-time right. television and baseball and human Hall of Fame. One of the greatest human beings on earth. That's right. Even when he's not, if there's a day like today, he wasn't on today. His presence was still felt. He is a oh. human Hall of Famer. He's a human first ballot Hall of Famer. And John Lemire, you're not so bad yourself. Everybody's got to go out and buy this book. Here, my I know you got to go, but the orange, okay? I, my, one of my favorite colors, I love orange. I got no problem with it. The big lie, election chaos, political opportunism in the state of American politics after 2020. Is this orange cover in some way, some kind of an oblique reference to Donald Trump, uh, Agent Orange, I, Orange I Man Bad? I swear it's not. Is it or I not? I swear it's not. I swear it's not. And I will say, I actually had nothing to do with it. The, the publisher just thought they loved the orange. I thought it would pop on the bookshelves. And the orange it, with the black and the white, I actually do think it's really striking. Oh, it pops. And I'll tell you, it's going to be a huge seller for Halloween. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) my friend and the author of this great new book, John Lemire. Holloman, thank you, buddy. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Jonathan Lemire for being with us. And remember to pick up Jonathan's great new book, The Big Lie, Election Chaos, Political Opportunism, and the State of American Politics After 2020. If you like this podcast, please, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer. Fonda Mwangi is our researcher and assistant producer. And the one and only Marshall Eisen is our executive producer. 